we're directing our attention to a study in the book of Acts. Daryl Bach states poignantly and succinctly about these early verses in Acts, without Jesus and his work, one cannot make sense of the church's existence and activity. Without Jesus and his work, one cannot make sense of the church's existence and activity. So if you were with us last week for our introduction to Acts, you may recall that in verses 1 and 2, these opening verses suggest that Luke is about to narrate what Jesus continued to do and teach after his ascension through his spirit by the ministry of his followers. Our text for today then emphasizes, which is verses 3 to 11, emphasizes Jesus preparing his apostles for the mission of continuing his work and Jesus' promising enablement to carry it out, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's read beginning in verse 1 just to provide that context. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them or while eating with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Only even as we sang, next time, less privately. With the loud trumpet call, and all the earth will know Jesus has returned. While this prologue in Acts reviews the closing scene from Luke's first volume, the Gospel of Luke, it adds additional detail and some nuance that sets the stage for the coming of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the apostles in spreading the gospel, which grows and expands as there are new converts to following Jesus, together making up the church. We are further removed by historical distance, some 2,000 years, but we also have greater clarity provided in the completed New Testament canon. 
perhaps we need to take a minute to realize that we probably now take it for granted. To us, it feels like a given that Christ's ongoing work through his church is part of God's perfect plan. But the apostles needed confirmation and they even needed commissioning. So the Holy Spirit communicates through Luke to the readers, the early church, those like Theophilus, how the Lord Jesus prepared his apostles to be the foundational witnesses to the present phase of God's kingdom rule. So we're looking at this text and seeing that in in his final days on earth and at his ascension, Jesus prepares his apostles by persuading them that he is risen and reigning. That's the first thing that we're going to see. We're going to see that Jesus persuades them to wait patiently for the promised baptism with the Holy Spirit. He persuades them that this phase of the kingdom is according to God's plan. He persuades them that they will be empowered by the Spirit to advance his kingdom. He persuades them that he is sure to return the same way that he left. So, as we're looking at Acts, we mentioned last week even that there's a uniqueness to the experience of the apostles to whom Jesus gave these instructions. But we certainly ought to be asking ourselves, how might God use this same promise of the Holy Spirit to enable us to be witnesses and to make us persuaded, prepared, and obedient as his representatives. Let's look first again at verse 3 in the way that Jesus prepares his apostles by persuading them that he is both risen and reigning. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Luke himself had given some examples of these resurrection appearances. When we take the appearances described all together, there were at least 10 separate appearances of the Lord to his followers after his resurrection. And Luke didn't intend to, to try to be exhaustive in the ones that he gave. We know that since here he says he was appearing to them over a period of 40 days, which allows for the resurrection appearances recorded in other gospel accounts that took place not only in Jerusalem, but also in Galilee. But the point is, by the time Jesus had appeared to them numerous times, encouraging them to touch his glorified body that retained the scars of his crucifixion, to feel that he had a real body, and after Jesus had eaten with them to show that an apparition wouldn't or couldn't do that, The point is, Jesus had thoroughly convinced these ones, his followers, who had not expected the resurrection, that he was indeed still alive. It's good for us to realize, too, that Luke himself was completely convinced of the historical reliability of the evidence that he had gathered from all of these eyewitnesses, Luke 1, 2. Jesus convinced them that he was risen. And secondly, during these various times that he appeared to them, Luke tells us that he was speaking about the kingdom of God. We'll have more to say about Jewish kingdom expectation when we get to verse 8, but here we can say that it was necessary for Jesus to explain that the kingdom 
that he had been preaching before his death and resurrection as being at hand, that kingdom that he was talking about being at hand has now come. God's kingdom in this sense refers to God's promised rule that comes with Jesus' messianic program and activity. In the parallel passages in Luke 24, verses 25 to 27 and verses 44 to 49, indicate that he was specifically teaching his apostles how to interpret from the Old Testament scriptures his death and resurrection, demonstrating that these events were to be the means by which he entered into his glory as the Messiah, and he fulfilled God's saving plan for Israel and the nations. In other words, no one can come to the Father except through Jesus, and that Jesus accomplished these things, and this way had to be done. Are we persuaded that Jesus rose and is permanently reigning on high? What does it look like to be persuaded of these things? What does it look like to be persuaded that you believe in the risen Lord, that you believe that Jesus is currently reigning? We have to have an understanding and a conviction of why Jesus came. A holy God created all things for the praise of his own glory. He created people to worship and respond to him. But we have sinned and rebelled against God. And because of our depravity, there's, we have no means of rectifying that situation for ourselves. And so it was absolutely necessary that God resolve the problem himself. And so he sent Jesus to be the Messiah, to be God incarnate. We have to understand and have the conviction that Jesus then lived a perfect life to be and to do what we could not. We have to have a conviction and an understanding of why he died to take the penalty of our sin and to satisfy God's perfect justice, God's wrath against sin because God is a holy God. We have to understand and be convinced of why Jesus rose He rose then to conquer Satan, to conquer sin, to conquer eternal death, to prove his power and authority to forgive sin, and that he has the power to grant his righteousness to those who belong to him. Having this understanding and this conviction, we must also be persuaded that we can only receive this gift of grace by repentance of sin and self and faith in Jesus that submits to him as Lord. Jesus is risen and reigning. Whether or not you have a right relationship with God depends on whether or not you submit to him as the risen and reigning king. If we have this understanding and conviction of who God is, and then you, have, you are in relationship to him, you bow your knee, you yield your heart forever to the sovereign rule of Jesus. As one of our own members, Steve Hartley, repeats in his testimony, even as he just did last Sunday night, I am no longer the boss of my life. Jesus is. He is Lord. He's in charge of my life. 
the risen and reigning King. And not in some distant, uninvolved sort of way, but God actively engaged with his people through the Holy Spirit he has given us. And that's what we get to see again next. Jesus also prepared his apostles by persuading them that they needed to wait patiently for the promised baptism with the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, the translation, while he was staying with them, would probably be better translated was is when he was eating with them, because literally it says that they took salt together, which is an, an idiom for table fellowship. This undoubtedly refers back to what Luke wrote in chapter 24 of, of his gospel. And if you, you can turn there briefly if you want to. And Jesus ate with them, we see in verses 42 and 43 of Luke 24. And he explained to them how to read the Old, Old Testament scriptures Christologically or messianically in verses 44 to 47. And also then he told them to wait for the promise of the Father, verse 49. By which we learn here, he clearly means the gift of the Holy Spirit is the promise of the Father. So now when we come to verse 5, probably the question we need to answer is, what's the difference between John's baptism and the baptism with or baptism in the Holy Spirit? What's the difference? John's baptism was an outward symbol of repentance of sin to prepare a people ready to receive their Messiah. The baptism of the Spirit is spoken of in terms of similar imagery, only it's in fact literal. It's an internal or spiritual baptism, and it's permanent. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, We are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So how is our baptism in the Spirit similar and different than than that which is experienced by the apostles at Pentecost? Remember I told you last week, as you're going through a book like Acts, which is transitional in nature from God's work through his people Israel to God's work through his people the church made up of both Jews and Gentiles together through faith in Jesus Christ and the apostles and those immediately after them, they form this transitional period. And so we said we have to ask ourselves which things are descriptive of what happens and which things are prescriptive, which things should we expect to be unique to them and which things should be normative for us. And so we have to look to the New Testament epistles often to make comparison to understand how we should, should see things to be different or similar to the experience of the apostles. Now, we'll get into what they experienced in, at Pentecost, but the New Testament teaches that baptism in the Spirit is something God does for us when placing us in Christ. At the moment that God gifts us with responding rightly in repentance and faith, the moment God's saving work is first initiated in us. You can find that in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. And it is something shared by all of us, by every true believer, Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. What is not true of us is that, that it must be accompanied by external signs that it has taken place. Like it does in Acts, both at Pentecost and a little later as, as a clear sign to this new community of believers that God is truly accepting and bringing in new people groups 
into the people of God through Jesus Christ. Each time in Acts, you'll discover, remember, we're going to look at verse 8 and how the gospel spreads. Each time in Acts, in order to confirm to the new community that God is, in fact, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to new people, and he is bringing them in to him through the work of the Holy Spirit, in an unusual, in an inordinate way, people receive the Holy Spirit. It happens in Judea and Samaria, Acts 8 and Acts 9. It happens in, in Ephesus, Acts 19. As it continues to spread, we see this unusual work of the Spirit as an outward sign to the people of God that this is what He is in fact doing. A final brief note here is that not many days from now turns out to be 10. 10 days. They didn't know it was only 10 days, but it turned out to be 10 days. Since the Spirit comes on them at Pentecost, which is celebrated 50 days after Passover, and we've learned that 40 days have already passed. 10 days. They will wait. The point is that they must wait because God must equip them for the task. To launch the church in power, the apostles would need the Holy Spirit's presence to do through them what they could not possibly do on their own. For us, too, to continue as Christ's representatives, we must have the indwelling Spirit's presence and power. We must lean on Him and let Him lead us. Are you persuaded? that you have been given the indwelling Spirit of God? Lean on Him. Let Him lead you. He is the assurance and the proof that you are in Christ, and He is the power to live for God. He is the one who, who bears witness in your life and in your proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Last night I was tired And the Lord comforted me by reminding me, it doesn't make any difference how tired you are, Jeff. I will be faithful tomorrow the same way I was faithful yesterday and the same way I will be faithful forever. God's word is true and his Holy Spirit proclaims to your hearts this morning through the pages of his word, his truth. Let's continue. Jesus prepares his apostles by persuading them that this phase of the kingdom is according to God's plan in verses 6 and 7. Again, this is something that we sort of take for granted now, but it, they were confused. In fact, we're somewhat removed from Judaism. We might miss that this question that arises in verse 6 for them is, is a natural one that they would ask, especially connecting the kingdom to the coming of the Spirit. In the Old Testament scriptures, there are references in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, and in Joel. And if you want to go look at my notes later, there's a link to it in the sermon online, and you can, you can find these specific references there in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel to go to them. There's, in it, it speaks of the outpouring of the Spirit in the very context of the restoration of Israel. So it's a natural question for them, if you're going to be pouring out your Spirit is this the consummation? That's really the question they're asking. 
Jewish expectation for the kingdom was primarily one of physical and political liberation and restoration to God's favor because of his choosing and his promise. So the apostles are essentially asking if now is the time of kingdom consummation. Is this the final answer? Is this the completion of the kingdom of God on earth? So that seems to be the question then Jesus is answering indirectly. Will you bring the kingdom to its completion at this time? And without saying no, Jesus essentially says no, but that it is set for a future time that the Father has fixed and that they do not need to know. One of the commentators that I was reading this week said that he finds it surprising how much not only modern Christianity, but Christianity throughout history has seemed to have at times forgotten this thing that Jesus told us. We're trying to mark the signs and explain the signs and label a time. And Jesus says, you don't need to know that. Not that we shouldn't always be living prepared. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. But that we don't know the exact time. We should be prepared for his return. It also bears explaining in this section of text that Christians do not all agree. Even those who submit to the authority of Scripture as the completely inerrant word of God that is to be believed and obeyed. So that's the context I'm giving you for other Christians who might disagree with me. (laughs) I'm saying others who do indeed submit to the authority of the Scripture as the completely inerrant word of God that is to be believed and obeyed. We don't all agree on what God's future plan is for ethnic or national Israel as it relates to the present age, which we often describe as the church age, and as it relates to the future consummated kingdom. Some of us interpret the Bible as teaching, as is our position here at Branson Bible Church, that the church is a partial fulfillment of the kingdom in a way that there will one day be a literal kingdom on earth over which Christ will rule with his people. Others believe that the church is a partial fulfillment and that the heavenly kingdom is the consummation. And still others that the church is a complete fulfillment in the sense that the church's job is to usher in the kingdom and not only spreading the gospel to all people, but to effectively bring the majority of the world into submission to the rule of God through Jesus. Although we take the first view, we should note that one could argue that this response from Jesus could be supportive of any of these positions. So this text by itself is not going to give us our clear direction on that. Whatever the case, you cannot read the Bible with integrity and not conclude that the present phase of the kingdom, salvation through Christ, for people from every tribe and tongue and ethnicity, is intended and a necessary part of God's program to establish his rule. The church age is a part of God's plan. This is the kingdom of Jesus Christ in his people. The overall thrust of verses 6 and 7 then seems to be to his apostles, you must wait for the coming of the Spirit, but don't be waiting for kingdom consummation. 
Instead, in the power of the Spirit, the new community is to spread the word of Jesus as God's offer of salvation to all who receive him as Lord, to the Jew first and also to the rest. Just so, Jesus prepares his apostles then, as we continue in verse 8, by persuading them that they will be empowered by the Spirit to advance his kingdom. We tend to take this verse as a command, and I think rightly so, especially when we combine the commission of Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. But we, we often take this also as a command, and we kind of should, because especially once we get through verse 11 and the, why do you stand here looking up into heaven? Get busy doing Jesus' work until he returns. So it does come off as a command, but the statement from Jesus is in fact a promise. It's a promise. And this promise has two parts or two emphases. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. The power, this power, dunamis in Greek, this power they receive through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts, it is, it is associated with both miracles that they perform. It's also associated with the boldness and clarity with which they proclaim the gospel. Were it not for the work of the Spirit, world evangelization would not be possible. Jesus puts a, an impossible task before them. They need the work of the Holy Spirit. We need the work of the Holy Spirit. We would not ourselves respond to the gospel were it not for the work of God's Spirit. We would not live well as representatives of the character of God who has made us his own children were it not for the work of the Spirit. And we would not have what it takes to spread the gospel of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished and God's grace through him is the only means to be restored to God, to be received by repentance and faith. We would not have what it takes to spread that message to people of every ethnicity, of every part of the globe, without the Holy Spirit. This is all a work of God. And that's a promise that he will do it by his Spirit. And secondly, you will be my witnesses. This verse sets forth a mission that supplies the outline for Acts and reflects the church's fundamental call. Remember, we said the, the news will spread from Jerusalem, where they already are, to Judea and Samaria. You notice Galilee isn't mentioned because at the time, uh, Galilee was really a part of the province of Judea in terms of who ruled over it. It'll spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to places that are now, Samaria, uncomfortable and awkward. The message is for them too. And eventually, to every part of the world. And in Acts, the gospel spreads all the way to places like Ephesus, all the way to Rome. But when Acts ends in Acts 28... The mission is not yet complete. We're a part of that. 
Acts makes it clear that the gospel of God's saving accomplishment in Jesus must be proclaimed and believed if people are to enter God's kingdom and experience all his benefits. Jesus is the way to enter the kingdom, and there is no other. The witness of his people by the power of the Spirit is the vehicle God has sovereignly chosen to carry the kingdom to all peoples. Are you persuaded by this promise that by the Holy Spirit in us, we too represent Jesus to others around us? Are you persuaded that we are empowered to be his witnesses in the community where God has us? And are you persuaded that some of us need to be sent out strategically to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth? You remember I told you last week that part of the outline of Acts, you discover that when it first begins to spread is not because they strategized such, but because of persecution. Some of us will go from this place where God has been working in us, and it'll be because of other circumstances by God's providence, and he will move us to lead and to work according to what he has. Others of us, though, will be sent out strategically to go proclaim the gospel where Christ is not known. Are we willing? Not all of us will go in that sense. When you leave here this morning to go be God's people, you are his witnesses. That is a promise by the power of his spirit. But some of us, will be sent elsewhere. Some of us will stay and send them. But the question I still have for you is, are you willing? Have you asked yourself before, am I willing to go anywhere, doing anything with anybody, that God bids me to? Finally, in our text today, Jesus prepares his apostles by persuading them that he is sure to return the way that he left in power and glory. What must it have been like to be there? Jesus ascends before their very eyes, a visible representation of his returning to the Father to sit and reign at the right hand of the authority of the triune God himself. And the disciples must be not only astonished and amazed, but perhaps still somewhat perplexed, still trying to take it all in. Remember, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. So two angels sent from God, two men clothed in white, bright clothing, described just like the angels at the tomb after the resurrection. These two angels shake them out of their stupor. These men, these Galileans, they had all been from Galilee except Judas. So they're called Galileans by the angels, men chosen by Christ himself to be his apostles. And they say, hey, no need to keep standing here. Jesus is risen and reigning. You go prepare yourself to await the promise. And then get to the task that he has given. Don't stand here. Go do what he told you. Wait and receive the Spirit 
and be his witnesses. Notice the the way that both the promise and the command of Christ are reinforced in the final verses here at his ascension. Here we have a sure promise that even though we do not know the timing, we don't know the parameters of the epics in God's own providence, but we do know that our Lord will come again to consummate his kingdom program. He is coming again. Will he find us ready? Will he find us busy? Will he find us repenting and submitting again to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Will he find us striving to be a pure church? Will he find us proclaiming with the passion of saved sinners for lost sinners? by the power of the Holy Spirit from the pages of God's word so that his program of making a people for proclaiming the excellencies of his own great name, will he find us busy doing that? And again, the point of the unit really comes off as a command. Don't be looking up, being idle, waiting for his return, but move out and share what God's program in Jesus is all about. And in doing that, you hasten his return. (laughs) Jesus leaves believers as his successors, responsible for the job of world evangelization until his return in the same glorified body in the way he left. So as we draw our study of these verses to a close for this morning... Not that this should draw it to a close for you to never study these verses again. Just for this morning, we're wise to ask ourselves this question. Why did the Holy Spirit breathe out this text through Luke? This is from the Holy Spirit of God. This is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Why did the Holy Spirit breathe out this text through Luke? I believe it is to persuade us that Christ is continuing his work through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit to spread the good news that the kingdom of God has already come in spiritual form to all mankind, to the Jew first and to the rest, and that the presence and the power of the Spirit in the church, even now, is assurance that Christ is reigning and he is returning to consummate the kingdom, to persuade you and me So this prologue to Acts prepares the reader for what God has called the new community to do. The church's primary task is to represent God faithfully, including witnessing to God's work in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. If we belong to God through faith in Christ, then we too have become God's chosen agents to carry on the task, to represent him and be his messengers. David Peterson says, discerning readers will discover that this question is then answered in various ways throughout the rest of Acts. How will we continue what the apostles began? Christ is risen. Christ is reigning. Christ is returning. And he has equipped us, his church, by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to be his representatives until he returns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this promise, the gift that you gave 
through the authority of the Lord Jesus, that those who, whom you make your own through repentance and faith, that you give us the indwelling Holy Spirit. We know that because we still battle with the flesh, we frequently ignore the presence of the Spirit in our lives. So we pray that we as your people will be yielding, be submitting, be even just slowing down to be attentive to what it is that you desire from us and that we will be seeking that communication from your Spirit in your holy word that he himself breathed out. God, we know our weakness. We know our frailty. So we thank you that you promised to do this in us by your grace, by your power, and for your own glory. In Jesus' name.